Hello and welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about the Iran nuclear deal in a global context and the non-proliferation movement that's trying to stop the spread of weapons and eliminate the existing ones. How the nuclear negotiations succeeded under the Obama administration, how come President Trump hasn't been able to get a better deal with Iran, and how Joe Biden can revive this nuclear deal that's basically on life support. My guest today is Joe Sirincioni, a national security expert with 35 years of experience in Washington, D.C. He was the former president of Plowshares Fund and is now a distinguished fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft here in Washington, D.C. He has written multiple books about nuclear weapons, including Nuclear Nightmares, Securing the World Before It Is Too Late. Joe, welcome to the Iran podcast. Thank you, Nagar. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you. I'm glad you're here before it's too late. <laughs> it's getting close. <laughs> it, is, it is. I want to talk to you about U.S. policy on Iran from a nuclear perspective, because we've had mm-hmm. guests on this podcast and we've talked about diplomacy between Iran and the U.S., the failure of diplomacy, the lack of diplomacy, very much from a political perspective. But you bring a unique nuclear view into this. And I know you're a strong supporter of the nuclear deal with Iran. So let's start by telling us why is that? What is so special or so important about that deal that you're such a strong supporter? Sure. So some listeners may have the impression that everybody's trying to get nuclear weapons or that the spread of nuclear weapons is out of control. Uh, And this isn't actually true. In the early days, that is, in the 50s and 60s, there were lots of countries that were trying to get nuclear weapons, friends of the United States, adversaries of the United States. But the U.S. with other countries took decisive action and built a non-proliferation regime, meaning a series of treaties and arrangements and security assurances that did two things. One, it convinced countries that did not have the bomb to not pursue it. And two, it pledged that the countries that already had it, about five or six countries at the time these arrangements were together in the, in the 60s and 70s, to engage in negotiations to reduce their arsenals. Now, this system has been in place all this time, and it's had some uh, major successes, some failures, but overall, it has dramatically reduced the number of nuclear weapons in the world and the number of countries that have them. So we went from a height, for example, in the 1980s, where we had 70,000 nuclear weapons in the world, a truly insane level of armaments, and we're down now to about 14,000 held by nine countries. And that number of countries is pretty stable. We don't have a lot of countries trying to get nuclear weapons. You come, sometimes you hear the phrase countries like Iran and North Korea, but there are no countries like Iran and North Korea. There's only Iran and North Korea. Those are the only two countries that had serious programs that could lead to a nuclear weapon. North Korea obviously crossed the line. Importantly, Iran didn't. And a big reason why it didn't is this Iran 
nuclear agreement that mm. stopped Iran's program, rolled it back to a fraction of its size, froze it for a generation, and put it under the most stringent international inspection regime ever negotiated. It basically solved the problem, not completely, but enough mm. so that it was no longer a threat, that Iran's neighbors could feel safer, that the world could feel safer, and it set up a template, a model, for how you could approach this with any other countries. If that agreement had been allowed to succeed, you could build upon it with other agreements that could address the other issues of the program, and it would be an important step for the world to stop the last remaining ambitious, dedicated program that could yield a nuclear capability and roll it back. That was it was a major nonproliferation success, probably the strongest nonproliferation agreement in the world today. Fortunately, it's still alive. And depending on the results of the U.S. election, it may be resuscitated. We may get a chance to put it back in force. Mm -hmm. It's alive. And as some say on life support. So the next few months are very, very important in the destiny of basically this deal. But let me ask you, when someone like President Trump or other Republicans, people around him say this deal was a bad deal, this deal had flaws, what do you answer to that? Mm. And what would be basically the alternative that we haven't seen in the past yeah. four years? Well, there's two levels to that. And one is that there may be some people, and I think this is the minority, who actually think there was a better deal that could have been negotiated. I disagree with that. I think the U.S. got a tremendous deal, much better than any of us thought we were going to get when we were advocating for the deal. But let's take, it, let's take them at their word. And by the bad deal, what they mean is that it didn't completely eliminate Iran's nuclear capability. You know, if we had negotiated with Iran back in 2003, when Iran was willing to negotiate, you know, there would have been a few trial centrifuges that we could have eliminated. So the whole point of the deal was to take Iran's capability, which just says it's using to enrich uranium for fuel, but could also be used to enrich uranium for bombs and to, and to get rid of it. If we had done this in 2003, I think we could have done it, even in 2009, 2008, when they only had a couple of hundred centrifuges. But by the time the U.S. actually starts negotiating this thing, there were thousands of centrifuges in Iran, and it was politically impossible for Iran to make a deal to eliminate all of these centrifuges. And so the criticism is, well, you still left some capability and they could break out of it at the end of the restraints and make a dash to a bomb. I understand that. I think that criticism is wrong and there's a path where you could build on the agreement to address these other issues. But there's another criticism or another level of this criticism that I think is the real one, which is that this criticism tends to come from people who don't want to make a deal at all. That the problem really isn't that it didn't eliminate the capability or it didn't address their ballistic missile capability or the inspections should have been more thorough or they should have been forced Mm -hmm. to do a mea culpa and admit that they had a nuclear weapons program back in the 1980s, 1990s. What they're really objecting to is they don't want to make a deal at all. And some of them are honest about this, that they feel that making any deal with this regime 
the mullahs, as they say, mm-hmm. was legitimizing the regime. And the whole point of their policy, let's say Bibi Netanyahu in Israel or his supporters here in the United States or Saudi Arabia, the whole point is to overthrow the regime. Mm-hmm. So they don't want to do anything that legitimizes it or sets up normal relations or keeps the regime in power. So I believe that's the real criticism against the deal. No deal is the only thing that's acceptable, not a better deal. Mm-hmm. And we see some in the Trump administration, at least in his orbit, maybe not the president himself, um, have tried that path for the past four years. And so far, we haven't seen the end of the regime. Um, well, you talked about Obama's success. And we have also talked about how that happened, for example, with Trita Parsi on this podcast, view from other countries even. But I want you to give us a view from the ground because people know you as a national security expert, but what many people may not know is that you also have experience in organizing and you basically mm-hmm. built this civil society or this coalition on the ground that supported the diplomatic effort and some may not know the extent of it or the importance of something like that and how it helped to basically lead to the success of those negotiations and that historic deal. Talk about Mm. that coalition, how you built it and what it did. You know, some people think about these national security issues as debates, as uh, strategic discussions, as dueling articles, and and that what we're basically doing is trying to prove to the other side that our strategy, our set of policies is, is more effective at resolving the nuclear uh, threats that we face. Uh, that is a very limited view and an unrealistic view. Anybody who's been in Washington, uh, <laughs> certainly as long as I have, understands that, yes, there's a policy element there, but there's also a deep political element. How does this set of policies benefit the political parties? How does this help your group stay in power or gain power? There's an economic level to this. Am I going to make money off these policies or lose money off these policies? So if you're going to address an issue as complicated as Iran, this is true for nuclear weapons overall, nuclear budgets overall, but if you're going to address an issue as complicated as Iran, you have to understand that there are political agendas out there and you have to have an operation that's going to be able to counter those political operations mm-hmm. um, and, and not just write the brilliant article that is going to put all the critics to rest. So that's what we tried to do uh, at the Plowshares Fund. We, we had done this back in, in 2010 when we brought together a couple of dozen groups to build support for the Obama administration's negotiation of an arms control treaty with Russia that ended up being called New START. And we built the outside support for that, arguing the case, arguing why this was a good thing to do, fighting ideologues in the Senate who, who were against arms control who wanted to kill it, fighting against the defense contractors, the politicians that, res- that represented states that had nuclear bases in their states and didn't want to have any limitations on the nuclear weapons. We've successfully fought them mm-hmm. on a political level as well as the policy level. And we then turned that to the, the situation of Iran. We began our operation before the administration was negotiating with Iran. Part of the, the purpose was to convince the administration that this was a viable course of action. And it included over in the end, included over a uh, oh, maybe almost four dozen organizations with various levels of expertise. Some some were arms control experts, like the Arms Control Association. Some were 
represented Iranian Americans, like the uh, National Iranian American Council. Some were mass movements, like MoveOn.org or Vote Vets. Um, but all of these groups had an interest in preventing a war between the United States and Iran. And remember, mm-hmm. at the beginning of this effort, back in 2012, when, when negotiations actually began, and then 2013, when they broke out into the open, the great fear was that Israel was going to attack Iran and the U.S. would be drawn in. So you had an anti-war element that came into this that was in favor of, of the negotiations. We were able to successfully unite all those groups. Mm-hmm. And by unite, I mean two things. We, we brought them to a group table where we could discuss strategies, discuss uh, messaging, share analysis, try to figure out what the best course was. And two, we were also successful in raising money for these groups to allow them to do the work they, they wanted to do. All of the groups maintained their independence. For experts, this is particularly important. Mm-hmm. They don't want to be seen as part of some oh, manipulated group. (laughs) I wish we could manipulate these groups, but we don't have that much money or that much influence. But but the experts retain their independence. Of course, larger groups like Move On and and Vote Vets maintain their independence or J Street. But they all had a shared unity. They shared the same goals. And when it came down to crunch, when it came down to winning support for this in Congress. They all worked together to counter the well-financed efforts led by AIPAC, the pro-Netanyahu Israeli lobby in Washington, and groups like the Foundation for the Destruction of Democracy, I'm sorry, Foundation for the Defense of Democracy, and other groups that have a real anti-Iran agenda. They were lobbying heavily, spending heavily. They have certain politicians that are very beholden to them. So this is a real political fight. And only by developing this kind of coalition can you win the, the policy battle. You have to have a good policy. Mm-hmm. You have to have champions in Congress and in the administration for that policy. And you have to be able to articulate this whole issue to the American people in ways that, that wins their support and then advocate for those positions in public fora on Capitol Hill. We did all of that. And we did it over six years. We raised and spent about $12 million. And it was the most successful operation of its kind in this town, the most successful operation on a national security issue that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And it did succeed. And we saw that I was involved in watching very closely. We saw that nuclear deal historic. Many of us didn't even expect such a deal to see the light of day. And it went on for a short while until President Trump came in. We've heard about this better deal that we haven't seen. And now we're close to an election, mm. which could possibly be the end of President Trump. And Joe Biden could become president in January. And once he becomes president, and we've talked about this on this podcast before, there will be only a short window of opportunity, basically, until Hassan Rouhani's term ends. How do you think Joe Biden can revive the nuclear deal as he's talked about it? And what should he do? What is the path for a potential Biden presidency come January? Yeah, I I wrote about this recently for the Quincy Institute in their blog, uh, Responsible Statecraft. There are very few national security issues that are going to that are going to rise to the top of the Biden agenda. But Iran will be one of them. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, it's easy to solve. Uh, like 
Klauschwitz said about war, everything in war is very simple, but even the simple things are difficult. Mm -hmm. This is actually a very simple solution, but it will be difficult for them to implement. So it's going to require the president to personally direct this, to want this, to push it, to spend some political capital on this, even while he has to deal with the other the mess that he's going to inherit from the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. And it's simple because unlike many of the other issues we have, Israeli-Palestinian peace, uh, ending the war in, in Yemen, for example, the, the mess that is Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan, so much of this is determined solely by U.S. policy, that the U.S. can, by just changing policy, solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And that change in policy is to start participating again in the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran deal. The deal is still alive. As you say, it's on life support, but the Europeans have labored mightily to keep it alive. Mm -hmm. They think of this deal as the crowning achievement of European diplomacy, and they're right. Russia and China and Iran are still in the deal. The framework is there. The mechanisms are still there. It's only the U.S. that's missing. So with one simple step, the Biden administration can rejoin, technically, we never left. We just stopped participating in the deal. There is no exit mechanism. So all we have to do is start participating again. And by so doing, we can get the Iranians to come back into compliance. But it's important to understand that we have to come back into compliance first. We have to take the active steps to show that we are again going to participate in this deal in good faith. That's where we get the leverage. We don't get the leverage by trying to pressure Iran into agreeing to a whole new list of steps they have to take to sort of fix the problems in the deal, etc. We get the leverage by starting to do what we're supposed to do first. Remember, we're the ones who left the deal. We're the ones who started violating the deal. Iran was in complete compliance for the deal until we left. Mm -hmm. And the indications are that Joe Biden wants to do this. He said, I will rejoin the agreement as long as Iran is in compliance. I just was on a call with uh, Foreign Minister Zarif last week of the Council on Foreign Relations, and he said mm -hmm. Iran will come back into compliance, that is, will reverse the steps they took to increase their stockpiles of enriched uranium, etc., if the U.S. is in compliance. So you can see it's right there. You just got to do it. Saying it is easy. That's the easy part. Implementing it is going to require a lot of work from sanctions experts in the Biden administration, some of whom are already in the State Department ready to do this, to, to sort of bring us back to compliance, to drop the, the sanctions that the Trump administration put in place, to um, open up the channels again with Iran to start. We haven't had negotiations we haven't talked to Iran since Trump came into office, even before mm -hmm. he started violating the agreement. Um, we have to start those negotiations again. If you do that, you can get Iran to roll back. You can lay the basis for additional talks to address the range of issues that separate the United States and Iran, that separate Iran and its neighbors. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to ask you a harder question. Uh, this is very hard for everyone to predict. If Donald Trump does win the election and stay in the White House. He is a person who left the deal, but he's also the person who's talked about being capable of getting the best deal out there, a great negotiation, and we've seen his path with, with North Korea. Hmm. What do you think that scenario would be? Would Donald Trump come in and with his 
orbit of people who are more leaning towards regime change and pressure on Iran. Do you see that changing and basically his mm. second administration shifting gears on Iran and possibly him moving towards a North Korea strategy as he had in the previous term? Donald Trump uh, is a failed businessman and he's a failed president. He's a failed negotiator. He doesn't know how to make a deal. I mean, he's had four years to make a deal. I oppose almost everything that this president has done, but I backed him in the North Korean initiative. I wrote about this. I talked about this. I thought that might show some promise, that this was a guy who who threw out the rule book and uh, you know flipped the script and met with Kim Jong-un at the beginning of talks rather than at the end of the deal mm-hmm. and seemed to open up a channel that might work. But it turns out they were incompetent. He didn't know how to make a deal, either by himself. He seemed to think that he'd go into a room and he and Kim Jong-un could turn their love affair into a binding agreement. No, it failed. Mm -hmm. He didn't have competent people around him that could help him do this. He had people like John Bolton insisting on a Libya, so-called Libya model, which is that North Korea had to give up everything and then the United States was taught to live sanctions, something that, of course, North Korea couldn't agree to. He had decimated the State Department, so some of the experts who knew how to do this were, were not around anymore to help him do this. And, of course, it turns out he was never really serious about it. He just wanted a photo op. He just wanted some pictures. He just wanted the illusion of success, not the actual success. And the same thing is is with Iran. Mm -hmm. I think he would like to have a deal with Iran. I don't think he cares about overthrowing the regime personally. I don't think he wants to go to war with Iran. But he is so incompetent that he could not bring about any situation that possibly could lead to a deal. And I don't think he could do this in a second term. Mm -hmm. And he's surrounded by people that had different agendas, like Mike Pompeo and John Bolton. You know, they do want to go to war with Iran. John Bolton wrote in his book that his greatest disappointment, and one of the reasons he left the administration, was that Trump did not go to war with with Iran. And he brought him to the precipice twice. Remember, we almost went to war with Iran twice, and then Trump turned away from it. Mm -hmm. The big reason is, I believe, he thought that war with Iran would plunge the United States and the world into, into a recession, and he would lose the election. Well, in a second term, he's not going to care about that anymore. And his clumsy policy and the kind of fanatics he tends to bring around him may once again put us on a slippery slope of war with Iran, where even if he doesn't want to go to war, the kind of actions he will take, the kind of bombast that characterizes the way he talks, the mere presence Mm -hmm. of U.S. forces in close proximity to Iranian forces or Iranian allied forces could lead to an uh, an accident, uh, an exchange of fire that could quickly escalate uh, into a war that that neither side truly wants. So no, I don't think Trump is capable of negotiating a deal with Iran, uh, but I think he's very capable of stumbling into a war with Iran. Mm-hmm. And let me ask you about this. You said you don't think he cares about regime change in Iran. He, he doesn't want to go to war. Do you think he cares about the content of the deal when he says it's a bad deal because it didn't limit Iran's nuclear program enough? Now, in the past two years, we've seen Iran basically, or in the past year at least, pushing the limits of that very bad deal they're talking about. Do you think he even cares about the content of what this deal is or the better deal that he's talking about? No, 
No, I don't. I don't think he does. I don't think he knows what's in the deal. I doubt very much he's even uh, read the deal. I doubt he read the document that he signed with with Kim Jong Un um, in Singapore years ago. He, he. This is not a man who cares about details. He doesn't have an overarching interest in, say, controlling the spread of of nuclear weapons. There's nothing that demonstrates that he does. There's nothing that demonstrates that he actually understands the issue. I bet you he could not tell you what uranium-235 was and and whether it had peaceful purposes or, or not, or that he could tell you about the history of Iran. I bet he doesn't know mm-hmm. that the United States overthrew the democratically elected government of Iran in 1953, something that very few Americans know, but every Iranian knows. Mm-hmm. No, this is a man of deep profound and very dangerous ignorance. He's looking for things that benefit him. He's got a very simple bottom line. What does this do for me? Does it advance my family? Does it advance my economic interest? Does it enhance my re-election prospects? After that, there is no agenda. There is no vision. There is no strategy. He has a series of impulses and gut beliefs. And Talking about the importance of the nuclear deal with Iran, again, putting it in a more global perspective, where does where do you see this Iran deal? Where does it stand, basically, in the broader mm. nuclear nonproliferation regime or the movement that you talked about? And then also the lack of such a deal. Now, either if this deal dies or Donald Trump is not able to achieve a better one, how does that play in a, a nuclear arms race? Maybe not around the world, but at least in the Middle East, as we've seen, um, at least with some of Iran's foes. No, it, it is around the world. You know, it- Everything is everything. Things are connected and it all matters. And this is particularly true when it comes to efforts to stop the spread of nuclear weapons. At the beginning of this podcast, we talked about the connection between the spread of nuclear weapons and the existing arsenals and the original deal codified in the Nonproliferation Treaty uh, that entered into force in 1970, where those countries that had nuclear weapons promised to get rid of them and those countries or that didn't have nuclear weapons, promised not to get them. And those, that, those two pieces, disarmament and nonproliferation, are two sides of the same coin. And the only way you advance one is by advancing the other. So you have to flip the coin over and over again consistently. That is getting rid of nuclear weapons, drawing down the stockpiles, making nuclear weapons less relevant to international relations, helps convince other countries not to get them. Stopping other countries from getting these weapons gives those that already have the weapons the confidence they need to continue their disarmament. So you can see you have to keep doing this. And the beauty about policy is that it has a track record, that you can go back now decades and say, well, did this theory work? And the answer is yes. Yes, it did. Haltingly, with setbacks, not a smooth path. But over time, this worked. The, the stockpiles have been dramatically reduced. We have 85% fewer weapons than we did before this, this regime was implemented in the, in the 70s. We, have, we used to have 25 countries interested in pursuing nuclear weapons in the 60s and early 70s. As I say, we're basically down to Iran. That's it. And if you can solve Iran, given that North Korea has already gotten it, if you can solve Iran, you can really stop other countries in the region like Saudi Arabia, the UAE from from getting them. And you can really start to and if you can get at the same time, make further steps to reduce the U.S. and Russian stockpiles. U.S. and Russia have 95 percent of all the weapons 
nuclear weapons in the world. Mm. So 95% of these 14,000 weapons are held by these two countries. If you can get them to take another dramatic step to reduce it and you put the Iran deal back in place, well, now you're back in business. Mm-hmm. Now you're, you're back on that. It isn't just the Iran deal they left. Mm -hmm. They left Ronald Reagan's Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, the landmark treaty that began the reduction process back in the 80s by eliminating a whole class of nuclear weapons. They have not renewed the New START agreement that is going to expire in in February of of next year. And if that goes, then you will, for the first time since 1972, not have any agreements limiting U.S. and Russian arms. You know, they, they have left the Open Skies Agreement, a very simple agreement that allows countries to fly over other countries' territories and take photographs of what they are worried might be suspicious military activity. Simple, th- and others, and others. They have been, as, as former Speaker of the House Sam Rayburn said, any jackass can kick down a barn. It takes a carpenter to build one. Mm-hmm. Well, there are a lot of jackasses in this administration, and they have kicked down almost all the key pillars of the nuclear security regime. So when Biden comes in, he's going to have to rebuild these. Some of those, like the Iran deal, like New START, he can rebuild pretty quickly, but others are going to take quite a bit of work. But if you can do that, well, then you're back on the road to reducing the number of nuclear weapons, reducing the temptation to use nuclear weapons, opening up channels of communication that can prevent misunderstandings and accidents, and you're back on the path of securing the world before it's too late. And finally, I want to talk about the U.S. a little bit, as you said, one of those few countries with nuclear weapons, the only one who's ever used one. There is also part mm. of this nonproliferation movement happening with with eyes on the U.S. here in the U.S., groups like Global Zero and others as part of the civil society. How do you see that movement progressing in the U.S. as it would then definitely impact that global movement and Mm. the move, the eventual move towards elimination of these weapons. Mm. Um, I've been meaning to write about this and maybe this will prompt me to to do this because I have a very particular view of this. And it goes back to how, what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast about you have to understand that this is not just a policy debate. So Washington is filled with think tanks that put out reports. And I think and I, that's what I used to do. I used to be one of those guys writing the reports. But what it leads to is kind of this hubris that you think, well, here, I just got to put out the better idea. And here's my strategy. And uh, you should adopt my report. Well, that is not the way Washington works. People aren't ha- waiting around for your best idea. You've got to convince them that they have to do this and it serves their other interests and it serves their, their overall agenda. And that's the problem that the nuclear arms control, nuclear security community now suffers from. They're too weak to, sh- to convince other people that they should do what they say. And so they're depending on people to reduce the risk of nuclear weapons because it's a good idea, which it is, Mm -hmm. because it it will prevent a disaster, which it will. But it's not in people's immediate interest. So it's very hard to attract support for that, to get people to commit money to it, uh, to commit uh, political capital to it, to champion it as an issue on Capitol Hill. But if you link it 
to some of the other issues that are out there, then you could win adherence and you could put together a political coalition, a united front that can actually accomplish your goals. And here's the way you do that. Money. Money. Mm. You know, the Biden administration is going to come in with a very ambitious climate change agenda. You know, really exactly what we need to do. Exactly what we need to do. It's going to come in with a very ambitious health care agenda, very close to what we need to do. It's going to come in with an infrastructure agenda, you know, to build new roads and, and, and go to a green economy. Exactly what we need to do. But they're going to need money to do that. So whether you're in government or if you're one of those groups like the Sunrise Movement or the people who want Medicare for all um, or the, the people who are arguing for social justice and we need more programs to address the needs of underrepresented communities of color, you need money. Well, I got a $740 billion bloated military budget that can give you some of that money. And a big part of that is money that we're spending on nuclear weapons. Right now, the United States is planning to spend almost $2 trillion, $2 trillion with so many zeros, most people can't count it, $2 trillion on new nuclear weapons to replace every single weapon in the arsenal, to build it all over again, not at a reduced level, at the current level or more. And people are talking about a new Cold War with China. They're arguing in articles in in Washington that we need to build new generations of, of weapons, new kinds of weapons. Well, who are the people financing those studies? The defense contractors. Who are the ones lobbying for those? Uh, agendas on Capitol Hill, the defense contractors. So you got to build a coalition with the people who want climate change, who want better health care, who want social justice, and you got to help convince them that part of the answer, part of the, the way to get those is to reduce the military budget and top of the list, reduce the nuclear budget. You do that, now you've got a winning coalition. Now you've got some muscle. Now you've got some people who, when they go to Capitol Hill, they'll listen to because they represent millions of voters and millions of dollars in campaign contributions. That is the only way we are going to advance a sane nuclear policy in the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that you talk about this a lot. You make all of these important connections. You write about this. I encourage everyone to follow your writings at the Quincy Institute, to follow you on Twitter, and to also read your book, Nuclear Nightmares, Securing the World Before It Is Too Late. On that note, Joe, I want to thank you for joining the Iran podcast. Well, thank you very much. It just flew right by, at least for me. I hope it did for you. (laughs) It was. It was great. That was Joseph Cirincioni, former president of the Plowshares Fund and now a distinguished fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft here in Washington. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. You can subscribe to us on your podcast apps, and please don't forget to rate and review the podcast. You can also sponsor the podcast and help us continue the project and be independent. You can follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast, where we post about our future guests and upcoming episodes. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.